But let me let me pray for us, and we'll get into the text this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for being who you are, that you are good. And I would pray that as we open the scriptures this morning, we as your people would have a taste of that reality uh, on our hearts, the reality of your goodness. We pray that we would not only know it, but experience it as we trust you and what you say. Uh, So we thank you that we can trust you. You've proven you are true to your word in Jesus. And so we look to you now and ask Holy Spirit, help us to receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, uh, suffering happens, <laughs> right? This is, uh, this is well documented. And, uh, and it produces tension, doesn't it? It produces a lot of questions many times. Like, how come suffering happens? How come we experience this reality in our lives? Um, oftentimes, it seems uh, to not make any sense at all. Like, man, I, I'm close to God, I'm doing what he asks, and then this happens, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's a reality. The Bible is never shy about the reality of suffering. Uh, and in fact, the, the, uh, according to Hebrews... The pioneer of our faith, Jesus, uh, died unjustly, okay? So our entire worldview hangs on the reality of an unjust death. We acknowledge suffering. We acknowledge that it happens. Uh, in fact, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus was made perfect through what he suffered. Um, that doesn't mean morally perfect, like he wasn't, and then he became morally perfect, but it means complete. Uh, made perfect, made complete as our Savior through what he suffered. He entered the human story and experienced suffering. And so we're going to look at a story today that I I think will help us face some of those realities. Uh, The storyline of Acts begins with the author, Luke, telling the recipient of his story uh, that he has already told him what Jesus began to do in volume one, that is the gospel of Luke. And so Acts is what Jesus continues to do through the church and by the Holy Spirit. And so the storyline of Acts is all about what Jesus keeps on doing. And we've been following this main character, Paul, from about chapter 12 or 9 on, but really he picks up in chapter chapter 12, and it's at this point that we've been tracking with his journey, and Luke has mapped his story onto the story of Jesus. And what we're seeing in Paul's own journey is that Jesus is manifested through his life in some pretty remarkable ways. And so now he's on this journey at sea. Um, If you've been following along with us, you know that Paul has appealed to the authorities that have him arrested to go to Rome. And he says, I don't trust that I'm going to get a fair trial in Jerusalem, and therefore I want to go out of Judea to Rome and be tried there. And so now he's en route, en route. He's on a boat with some sailors and soldiers. And verse 9 of chapter 27 says this, Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, so it's the time of year where the Mediterranean Sea is getting dodgy, right? That's what's going on. It's a, not a good time to travel. And by the way, Paul is a very experienced traveler. Right? He has a like 
gold member status or what well, I don't know even what that is because I'm so low on the status rung with the airlines but right like he he gets to go to the uh the lounge and gets free warm towelettes okay so like that's how uh like that's how much this guy travels and so he he uh he's well versed and so he says to the crew of the boat in verse 10, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss. I've been on ships. I know the Mediterranean. I've been shipwrecked twice before. I'm telling you, don't leave the island, right? Like that's kind of what he's saying, right? And so he says to them, I perceive that this voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but our lives as well. Guys, I think we might die on this trip. That's what he's saying, okay? And the centurion paid more attention, however, the guy who's guarding him paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, that's another city further west on the island of Crete, facing both southwest and northeast and spend the winter there. Now, so we've seen on the map, he kind of goes from Judea, he goes over here to Crete, and they say, let's go from this place called Fair Havens over to Phoenix. It's a short little jaunt, right? And well, we're going to see what happens next. Um, they set out, but now it goes from just a calm wind to a massive storm. And he's caught in this thing that's called a northeaster. Um, you can go to the next text. Um, it says, soon, in verse 14, a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. And in fact, we'll, we'll fast forward to chapter, verse 20 where it says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So Luke is on the ship with him. That's why we get the we language. We're in a storm and we gave up hope. I don't know if you've ever been in a storm where you gave up hope. Like, I'm, this is it, friends, but this is where they're at. And so you can see here on the next uh, map, you have this picture of where they go from Crete. They were just trying to go a little ways, and this storm pushes them all the way over to this island of Malta. So they make some massive distance over these 14 days. So this storm was another one of Paul's sufferings. It's just a, it's another moment of suffering in Paul's life. And, and all the suffering that we get in life, in a way, could be likened to a storm. When you come in contact with a storm, it's way beyond your control, and it's always dangerous. And this is, this is what it feels like when we suffer. And so watching Paul deal with his storm teaches us, I think, something about how we can face all storms, all suffering and troubles when they come. So I want to pay attention to three things in this story. One is just the mysterious tension that we face in storms. Two is the outcome of storms. And finally, the refuge we find in storms. Um, and we'll see how Paul deals with it. And I think it will help us as we face storms, which is another way to talk about suffering. So first, the mysterious tension of storms. Take a look with me at verse 21. Luke is telling us about how Paul took leadership in the boat. He takes leadership and he comforts those around him who are losing hope. He says this, uh, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me 
when we set sail from Crete and, and, uh, and incurred this injury, or sorry, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I don't know that Paul's like really mean here. Like I, maybe, like it might just be a weakness moment where he's like, I told you. Like I, 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 I get that. Like there, I can go back and look at decisions people have made and I'm like, yeah, I know. I did tell you. And no one ever appreciates it, right? No one is transformed and better off when we bring in our I told you so's. But man, I can relate. Um, and and yeah, maybe one other person's as sinful as me. I don't know. But, um, and so anyway, he says, I told you that this was going to happen. I don't think he's actually doing it to rub salt in a wound. I actually think what he's doing is he's showing the authority and validity uh, that he has, right? He, he's speaking with authority, right? He spoke with authority before. I'm a well-seasoned traveler. It's not going to go well. Um, and it turned out the way I said. So listen up, right? Listen carefully to what I'm about to say, because what I'm saying has some authority to it. And says in verse 22, he says, yet now I urge you to take heart. Okay, we're going to leave that in the past. Let's deal with right now. I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Okay? Just the ship's going to go down, but you are going to make it. Verse 23, he says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, uh, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. He's, he's graciously given you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have told you. But we must run aground on some island. Right? It's going to come at a cost, but you're not going to be lost. So Paul says, God says it. It's set. It's going to be okay. Right? But let me show you something else. Down in verse 30 and 31. We're told that at one point, the sailors are scared. This is after Paul has said this. They're scared, they're freaking out, and they attempt to escape the ship by letting down a little lifeboat, right? Like, it, I don't know that that seems like a great idea. Like, if you're on a big boat, getting in a littler boat in a storm doesn't make sense to me, but I'm not a sailor. So they are trying to get off this thing. And while they're doing it on the sly to avoid being seen, Paul discovers it, and he calls the Roman centurion over, and he says to that person, the the authority on the ship, uh, he says this to the centurion, "Uh, unless these men stay in the ship, you can't be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. I don't know if you noticed it, but this presents some tension. Like, what's Paul saying? Uh, we can't handle the ship without the sailors. You guys are soldiers. You don't know what to do. You're good in a sword fight, but you're worthless in terms of navigating a ship, right? So he says, unless those sailors stay, we're not going to be saved. Do you see the tension? Like, just a second ago, Paul said, it's absolutely certain. God has determined it. No one's dying on this boat. And then the very next thing he's saying to the centurion, uh, yeah, you can't let those guys go. We're all going to die. What? What's up with this tension, right? And so uh, what I would say to you is that Paul is absolutely convinced that God is 100% in charge of the storm. 
And at the same time, he sees skilled sailors about to leave, and he says, we're not going to make it without them. Uh, And I think what happens is we have this either-or thinking when it comes to God. We think that, in our minds, if God's totally in charge, what we do doesn't matter. If God's in control, human choice and agency is kind of out the window. It's either or. Or we believe if what we do matters and it has consequences, then God is somehow holding back and not really in control. And we live in this either or mentality. But Paul is a both and kind of person. He understands that the God of the universe has determined some things to happen. And he also determines that they happen through human agency, right? And so he actually set the whole game up that way, that he would accomplish his will through humans. To be an image bearer of God is to be someone through whom his will is worked out. He delegates to humans. And so, in other words, Paul is assuming that on one hand, every single thing that happens, small things, bad things included, is determined by God, And every choice absolutely matters and has consequences. So we're free, we're responsible, and God is totally sovereign. It's a paradox. It's a mysterious tension. And here's why I think that, well, let me me give you one more example of it. Peter, in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, stands up before uh, all the Jews in Jerusalem after the Spirit of God's come, and he looks at the people in Jerusalem and says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. Right? Jesus' death, on purpose, the work of God. Jesus' death, in rebellion, the work of mankind. What in the world? You have to hold on to these two tensions. And so, why am I talking about this? Right? We tend to think of this conversation as fairly esoteric and abstract. But what I want to say to you this morning is it's absolutely vital in a storm. It's important and it's crucial, and we hold on to this tension. Because what I do matters, and it has consequences, and at the very same time, there's security in knowing that there actually is a plan, and it's not out of control. God actually knows what he's doing. And it's really important that we keep those things together. It's really tempting for us, Uh, to want a passive-aggressive kind of security that just says, well, God's got it, and I don't have to do anything or be vulnerable or make decisions. On the other hand, we can resent that God would force our hand on anything. and say, no, I'm the master of my own destiny. I, for one, am very glad I am not the master of my own destiny. Thinking about some of the things I wanted at 20 that I didn't get, those have, like, that saved me, right? Like, there are some, there are some, Choices that I would have made at 20 or 21 that I am so glad God goes, yeah, you're not the master of your own fate. I have a better story for you. Right? There are things at 30 I, wish, I, like, I wished I would have gotten that now I'm like, oh, thank God you did not give me what I wanted at 30. Right? And so we continue to live this life where we realize there's freedom and God con- controlling the narrative while also giving us choice. And this, here's why this is a practical point. Because if we say it's destined and it doesn't matter, we, we actually give up and we become either lazy or uh, we just we 
give up any of our own agency. We become passive. But you look at Paul on the ship, he's not passive at all. He's leading. He's making good decisions. He's comforting. He's exhorting. He's saying, do this. Don't do that. Right? He's actually directing things on a ship while he knows that the ship's going to get where it needs to go. Uh, he's not passive. Right? So he knows his choices have, matter, or has, have consequences. And yet at the same time, he's not panicked. And, and this is, uh, for those of us who, who think that it's all on us and God's not really in control, this is where we go. We go to panic. And I say we because this is uh, more my tendency. I go negative and I'm like, oh man, the van door fell off this week. Literally happened. The second time, the other van door <laughs> fell off this week. And I'm like, that's it. Our lives are over. I'm an hour and a half late to where I want to be and the van door's falling off and our pet's heads are falling off and it's terrible, right? And like... Right? And then those moments squeeze in and you're like, oh man, I actually don't think I believe right now that God's sovereign and I need to repent of that. Right? Uh, so we need to repent of not thinking our choices matter, but we also need to repent of not thinking God's actually in control. And like, it's a van door. It's fine. Like, that sucks, but it's cool. Like, it goes back on. And, uh, right? like, and these are the things that happen. Where was I? Yeah, so if you'll... If you understand that God's sovereign, the temptation is to become passive. But if you understand that your choices matter, it's also tempting to then become either uh, panicked or frightened. But Paul doesn't go that way. He doesn't go negative, right? He actually isn't passive and he isn't panicked. And so you have to have both of these in place as storms approach you. As storms will approach you, and they'll be totally ruinous if you give up under a false view of God's sovereignty that your choices don't matter, or if you have a false view of your own sovereignty that your choices are all that matter. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay, so let's keep going. This mysterious, mysterious tension of the storm uh, is there, but what's the purpose of the storm? Let's keep reading. As the day was about to dawn, it says, Paul urged them to take some food saying, today's the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and, giving thanks to God in the presence of all, broke it and began to eat. Which is a word-for-word reminder of Jesus' Passover, right? word for word. That Jesus, in the moment of his ultimate storm, breaks bread with his disciples, feeds them. I don't think this is a Eucharist meal on the ship, but we're reminded of Jesus in this moment. And so here he, he does this. He breaks the bread and he gives it, and he nourishes the people around him, giving thanks to God in the presence of all. Then uh, it says that they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves, uh, this is perhaps a practical, I don't even know if this is at all Luke's point, but let me just throw this out here. When things are brutal in your life, like do not neglect taking care of your body. Like uh, when we don't eat and we don't drink and we don't take care of ourselves and get rest, we're way worse. Just as a just as an FYI, when Elijah is utterly depressed after he thinks nobody's with him and after he's had this massive showdown with the, God, the priests of Baal in First um, Kings 19, he's hungry and he's depressed and God goes, yeah, lay down, have a nap, 
And he wakes him up and he gives him a snack. He's like, now do it again, right? Because there are times when the storms hit you. You just need to lay down, have a nap, and then have a snack. And that's okay. All right. So um, there you go. Super deep theological nuggets for you all. But it's biblical, okay? Um, so verse 37 says, uh, we were in all 276 persons on the ship. So you think about this. It's almost 300 people in this boat. And, uh, and they're miserable, right? And, uh, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, right? Now the sun's shining, right? It's not dark anymore. It's daytime. Uh, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. And so they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied uh, the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. And the soldier's plan was to kill all the prisoners, lest they should swim away and escape. But the centurion... This Roman soldier is playing into God's plan. And he says, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship, so that uh, so it was that all were brought safely to land. This is a remarkable story. And you can smell the tension. You can like feel the sea salt air, and you can... Feel the hunger and the adrenaline rush through your body as you think about jumping into the cold ocean. Like you can think through this for a minute. Imagine yourself there and the scene and the noise of wood breaking. And it's intense, right? And like, what in the world is God doing in this? He's bringing something about. And so Paul had this storm-tossed life. He was a veteran. This is his third shipwreck, by the way. Like, you can just imagine Paul going like, okay, so the exits are here, here, here. Like, he's telling everybody what to do, flotation device underneath your seat. Go with me, guys. And so uh, there is an outcome, though, to this storm. Uh, what, what in the world is God doing when he sends storms? Why does he allow them? This is a really big question, and we're not going to tie up all the tension in one message. Um, but why does he allow it? Why does he allow the storm to come? There's some big general answers, but before we get into that, let me just offer one thing that strikes me from this story. Uh, it's interesting to me, just if we look at storms as a metaphor in general, it, it's interesting uh, that if a storm comes on you and you're in a boat and you're actually able to keep it on some kind of course and you're able to keep from breaking apart, the end result is you're probably closer to your destination than you would have ever been under the steam of a normal wind. And that's what happens in this story. They wanted to just go a few miles to Phoenix, not Arizona, but Crete. And they ended up really close to Rome. They ended up on Malta. And so this storm moves them quicker to their destination. You would have been driven toward your destination faster right, than you ever would have been with a clear sky. If you can survive the storm, you're actually better off. And so Malta is close to Rome, and this is the destination. God is getting Paul, his messenger, his authorized messenger, to Rome for the sake of the gospel. And this idea it begins to get at a little bit of what 
I think the Bible has to say about storms in general. And the aim of the human life is to be like Jesus, to be conformed to his image. And there are just, if I have what I want when I want it, I won't be like Jesus. If I end up with comfort, which is what I want, and total security without risk, I won't look more like Jesus. And so what's interesting to me is that Jesus himself was perfected through what he suffered. And so we follow him in his pattern of life. And it's going to mean discomfort. And it's going to mean storms. There's a couple of general things, and well, one general thing and one specific thing that I think we can pull out of what Scripture teaches as a whole related to why storms. The first is a general purpose, and it's this, that the general purpose of storms is good. This is where we have to trust God's character. The purpose of the voyage for the captain of the ship is to make money, right? It's to get the cargo to a place so that he gets cash. So the voyage of this trip is not working out for the captain, right? The wheat's overboard. He's lost, he's lost not only his cargo, but he's lost his ship. And you would say the purpose of his trip has been ruined. But God has a bigger purpose, right? He wants to actually save lives and get the gospel out of the mouth of Paul in Rome. And so he is bringing about a good. There's uh, two verses, one in the Old Testament and one in the New, and I'll try to move through this fairly rapidly. Um, but to get the verse in the Old Testament, you have to have a bit of the background of the story. You guys remember this guy named Joseph? His dad, Jacob, had 12 sons. Joseph was his favorite, and he spoiled Joseph. And it created sibling rivalry of the worst kind. To one day when uh, Joseph was vulnerable and alone, his brothers jumped him and threw him in a pit. They wanted to kill him, uh, but instead they sold him to some, some slavers who were taking people to Egypt. And so what happened was they went back to dad with uh, some of his clothing and an animal's blood on it and said, you know, here, your, your son's been killed by some kind of cougar or something. And, uh, and then so the story goes on and he goes to Egypt and he's a slave in the house of Potiphar and this guy who's an official in the Egyptian empire and he does really well and he succeeds and he's responsible for the whole household, but he's also really handsome. And so Potiphar's wife develops this thing for him, and, and, uh, and so you might say he's attacked by another cougar. And, uh, and so then what happens is he, he refuses her advances, right? And so she, she calls foul, and, uh, and then he goes into prison, right? She he wrongfully accuses him. And so every turn in this guy's story, I mean, he gets into prison, and he serves in the prison, and he's elevated to the status of ruling in the prison, and yet he still ends up being kind of betrayed by the promises of some friends. And I mean, this guy's story is just one storm after another, after another, after another. And finally, he ends up, though, in this place of elevation where he is actually um, saving the lives of most of the Mediterranean world by the way that God has orchestrated his story so that he is in charge of all of Pharaoh's storehouses, remember, and so he saves the lives of his family and his brothers, even though they betrayed him, and all the people in the land. And he's just, it's this really remarkable thing. But if none of those things had happened, right, none of those, those bad things had happened, thousands would have died of starvation. 
right? And Joseph's family is saved, and Egypt's saved, and all these things happen. And at the very end of the story, he says to his brothers, they're trying to uh, manipulate him, and he just says, listen, look, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about the, that many people should be kept alive or saved as they are today, right? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. You had an evil intention. God uh, just straight like judo chopped it and flipped it back on its head, right? And, And intended good. It's almost word for word what Paul says in Romans 8, 28, when he says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. When you look carefully at that, you have to make sure you understand that it doesn't say all things are good. It is not excusing evil or giving credit to the enemy for bringing about good. It's just saying God's actually that redemptive, that he can take the worst and bring about good. Every terrible thing, if you look at it from a certain perspective, it's not good, but God can bring good out of it. And so one thing I want to say about that is God is not just utilitarian. It's not that the means justify the end, or the end justifies the means. But what we're saying is God is wise and outsmarts evil, that he's good and redemptive and overcomes evil with good. This is the kind of God we have. And so he's saying that all things work together, that from the vantage point of heaven, he is working out good. Every evil intent we'll see at the end of history God has done something with that is, in the end, redemptive. And so that's God's overall purpose of storms. But the reality is most of us don't live like Joseph and look back at our lives and go, I can see now how everything's stacked up. More often than not, people's storms look more like Job, who's the character in the Bible who is completely righteous, and yet he's overcome by storm. He loses his family. He loses his possessions. He loses his health, probably loses his marriage. It's a bad situation. And he never gets an answer for why. He never gets an answer for why. And yet, when you read through it, Satan, the accuser, is actually the one who's trying to say, let me ruin him, right? Let me ruin this guy. Let me test the way you run the world, God, because if you bless this guy... I, I bet you he'll praise you, but if you take away blessing, he'll curse you, right? And so in the end, Job, or Job hangs on to his faith in God, and yet what I would say to you is that Satan's scheme to undermine Job's faith ends up undermining his own purpose because what ended up being accomplished was that one of the most incredible wisdom books in the history of the world has ended up helping millions of people be faithful to God in suffering. In other words, God let Satan have just enough rope to hang himself, right? And he let Satan and evil intend something, but he accomplished something opposite. The other person we can look to is Jesus himself. You think about how great Jesus was, and you imagine being his follower and then seeing him on the cross. And you think, there's no way God's in this. There's no way God's in this. And of course, all the horrible things that happened to Jesus, all the anger of the world and the religious authorities and the fury of Satan, all of that evil unleashed on Jesus, it accomplished something. 
It accomplished atonement and redemption and ultimately led to resurrection. It's interesting, though, because uh, we, we'd never ask the question, I don't, I don't believe in God because he let Jesus die. Right? Nobody ever says that right? because we know why. We know that God had a good intent for it. And so where we are stuck is in the tension of knowing how Jesus has brought about good and how sometimes our storms just don't make any sense. And so we live in that tension. Faced with, do we trust that God will bring about good? That's the overall principle. He will bring about good. He is working good. But then there's a particular purpose as well. It's not just the general purpose that he will bring about good as he's shown that he has done through Jesus and will do at the end of history, but he will also produce something else in our lives. Uh, it, It would say that God poses an opportunity for us to grow in godliness from storms in particular. And so what he does is he offers us an opportunity to grow. Um, There are countless verses that speak to this, but one that I've held to many times is in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18, where Paul says this, We don't lose heart. Though our outer self or our body is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You feel the tension, right? our van's doors are falling off and so much worse, so much worse. And yet he's at work in it and he's renewing us into his image. It says that for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they disappear, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In other words, I can give myself to wasting away under pressure of storms, or I can allow the Spirit to do renewal in me. And it depends ultimately on where we look. Uh, One of the experiences that I think has been most trying for me over the last year and a half or so has had nothing to do with planting a church, but has had more to do with just pain of relationship, loss, and mourning some of that. And, And what has happened, without getting into the details of it, is as I meet with my spiritual director every month to go like, why am I dealing, why am I feeling this way? I don't, blah, you know, I get to vomit and go like, well, I don't know what God's doing, but let's pray through this, right? And so what I've found is over this year, God has just softened me in relationship in ways that I wasn't soft a year and a half ago. And what that means is that it's only through the storms that we actually end up resembling Jesus. Because Jesus himself is the one who has endured the storm. And that's where I want to go next. Where do we find refuge in the storm? Where do we find refuge? The only way to make it through a storm better is, uh, again, if you can be held together in it. A storm can take you apart. You can also be refined. And so what I would say to you is, how, how is it that we don't waste away, but how is it that we are renewed? Because every time a storm hits you, you have an opportunity to reach into a refuge or to just be anxious. Storms shake you, right? And so where do you go to find refuge? How does Paul do it? What does Paul say? Back in verse 23, he says this, encouraging the sailors. He says, for this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong, and whom I worship. Now that language of to whom I belong is covenant language. That's the language of God's promise 
and his power to keep his promise. When he says to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people, a possession, right? It's this, I, I am my wife's husband, right? She is my wife. There is this covenantal, like, not weird possession, but like, we belong, right? And that's what God, that's what Paul's saying. I belong to this God, the God to whom I belong. He's, he's describing this covenant marriage language. And so what he's saying is the strength of our position is not so much that we hold firmly to God in a storm. It's that he holds on to us. It's the God to whom I belong. He holds on to us. So how do you know you belong? How do you know God's not against you and the storm is proof? See, there's this Old Testament story that Paul's story actually reminds us of, where there was a messenger, a preacher, who was sent to the capital of an empire on a ship with pagan sailors, and there's a storm. And they know they're not going to make it, so they start throwing their cargo overboard. You know, this story is about Jonah. Right? Except he's running from God. He's not running to do what God wants. He's actually rebelling against God's compassion. He's rejecting God's mission to share good news. And the storm is for him. It's a storm of wrath and it's a storm to bring him back because he's in rebellion. And it might be easy to think when storms hit you that it is because of something I've done wrong. It's because of... Now, there's plenty of self-induced storms. Don't get me wrong, right? Like, I, you can't run a red light and go, ah, it's a storm. I'm suffering now that I have to pay this ticket. Like, that's insane, right? But what we tend to do is every time something gets hard, we go, oh, no, God must be against me. He must be out to get me. What have I done? All right? And we either blame him or we blame ourselves. And it, it might be easy to think that way. It is easy. But there could be a different reality, too. The storyline of the scripture is that we live in a broken world, that yes, humanity as a whole has rebelled, and, and the reality of suffering is a result of a broken world. But in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus talks about Jonah, and he says, now one greater than Jonah has appeared. And he talks about one greater than Solomon, that's himself, he's the true king. One uh, greater than the temple, he's the true presence of God. And then he says, one greater than Jonah, he's the true prophet of God. So he's the greater Jonah, and he's there. And how can it be that Jesus is the greater Jonah? It means that he's the true messenger and that he's come to bear the ultimate storm. That he's come and he's taken on the storm of God's wrath against all sin and unrighteousness and injustice. injustice. And there's a storm that we all deserve for running from God, and yet Jesus has already faced it. He's already taken it at the cross. He's already gone through the, the cosmic storm. He's exhausted that storm, or the cosmic storm has exhausted itself on Jesus where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's come out the other side and he's been raised in victory. He's now exalted. And so what does that mean for our storms? It means that he'll bring us through them with him. He's not the villain against you. He's actually the refuge for you because he's endured our ultimate storm so he can be a refuge. And that changes the way I face storms and it changes the way you're able to face storms. Because then you can go, God's not actually out to crush me. He's already been crushed for me. 
So everything else is an opportunity to be, to be conformed to his image. He says, my destiny is to be just like him. And so every challenge is a growth opportunity. And so storms can be utterly isolating. But refuge is the presence of God with you. That he's taken the ultimate cosmic storm so he can actually be with us in suffering. And he chooses to be with you in a way in which we're given courage and we're given comfort to be with others. And when you know someone in a storm, don't try to fix it, just try to be with them. And it's a privilege to be alongside anyone in a storm. So what I want to wrap this up with today is to say that when you face a storm today, um, or any time, what I would encourage you with is this. Right? Some of you are facing acute storms. Some of you are facing chronic storms. No other worldview offers you a God who suffers. Right? Whatever your loss, whatever your pain, Jesus Christ has already faced it in person. And I want to encourage you today and say he's with you. He's absolutely with you. And if you trust him, you can know that the storm isn't your punishment. It's certainly part of the brokenness of the world that God is controlling and eventually bringing good out of. But it can mean that meanwhile, you will become a more Christ-like person like Paul with poise and calm in the storm. That can happen because he's with you. So let's go to the table. Let's pray. Let's go to the table to receive from the one whose presence is with us.